Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunities you have given me in my life uh, that have brought me here today. Uh, Lord, you work things together, uh, sometimes things we like, sometimes things we don't like, um, but you work them all together for your good and for your glory, Lord, and we thank you for that. And I pray this morning, as we look into uh, the beginning of Nehemiah, uh, Lord, that you would open our hearts uh, to see how you are speaking to us through him. Uh, Lord, there is uh, so much uh, in, in the story of Nehemiah and, and who he was um, that we can relate to and that we can take personally. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, just stir in our hearts, stir in our souls uh, from your word today on who we are called to be and what we are called to do today and into the future. Lord, we thank you for uh, the saving grace of Jesus Christ and we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we are looking in Nehemiah chapter 1, right? Um, a part of chapter 2 today, um, you don't think that I'm overly uh, um, uh, ambitious here um, because I'm going through more than one chapter. I'm just going to uh, not go into some of the depth maybe that, that Pastor Aaron would go into. Um, I pro- promise I won't keep you too long. We do have a second service. I'm not gonna make. I'm not gonna make the second the, that promise to the second service. Um, I, I love Nehemiah because it's, it's a book of leadership, um, but it's it's better than that because if it was just a book on leadership, uh, many of us wouldn't bother with it. We wouldn't bother reading it. We wouldn't bother studying it because we'd be like, oh, I'm not a leader, so that's not for me. That's for somebody else, and we would just skip on to the next one. Um, but it's it's a book on the extraordinary. No, wait, it's a book on the extraordinary. Because Nehemiah wasn't extraordinary, he was just ordinary. But he was extraordinary. Okay? I know you're thinking, That's, isn't that the same thing? It's not. Extraordinary is, is amazing and, and super and great and extraordinary is just ordinary, but more of it. <laughs> right? That was Nehemiah. He was just Ordinary, just more of it. He wasn't a, he wasn't a prophet and he wasn't a priest. Uh, you, you know, when we read about in the Old Testament, we read about the prophets and the priests and, and how they, they served God mightily. Well, see, Nehemiah served God mightily, but he was just a guy. He was a layman. He worked for a, a non-Jewish boss. But that's what makes this account extraordinary. Before I get into the text, I want to ask you a question. What is your purpose? Maybe it's your life purpose, or maybe it's your this year purpose, or maybe it's just your today purpose. I feel many of us go through our day-to-day life without ever thinking on purpose. And I'm going to challenge you as we go through Nehemiah uh, to to go through these first few chapters uh, to pay attention and start to think about your God-given purpose. So let's read. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan the citadel that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So I do want to tell you, first of all, if I mispronounce a name, um, I'm going to say it confidently. <laughs> and so you're not even going to know it. Um, if you do know it, keep it quiet. Let it, it's our little secret, okay? Um, but so let's, let's catch up real quick here. Nehemiah is in, is in Shushan. He's in Susa. He's, um, the, the Jews have been taken captive. They've been led out of the promised land into exile. We're in the midst of the 70 years of captivity. Um, and so, so Nehemiah is, is not in his home country. He is in exile. He is in captivity. And some friends come from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah asked them, how are things back in the promised land? And their response not good. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This bothers Nehemiah. It bothers him that, that back in the promised land, back in Jerusalem, the, the land of, of Israel, there is problems. There are problems. So I want to I pause here for a minute. What bothers you? What do you spend your time mourning and weeping and fasting and praying about? See, because that's probably going to lead into that purpose that we were talking about, right? The thing that, see, a, a lot of people, I'm sure, knew the situation in Jerusalem, but not everybody mourned and wept and fasted and prayed over the situation in Jerusalem. Many of us don't have a purpose because we choose not to look for one. But I get ahead of myself. So, so Nehemiah is, is fasting, he's weeping, he's mourning, he's praying, he's upset, he's distraught. There's this, he hears about this, there's this burning deep within his soul that something, something should be done. So what does he do? He prays. Right? We always say like, well, the least thing I can do is pray. Or finally, you know, like everything I tried wasn't working, so I prayed. And then it was, and then it worked. You know, we always, like prayer is a last resort. Well, no. Like the best thing you can do is pray. Not the least thing you can do is pray. The first thing you should do is pray. Not the last thing you should do. I tried a bunch of different ways and it didn't work. And then I was like, well, all right, God, it's your turn. Well, no. Start there. You can save yourself a lot of problems. But you might get into some more. But we'll, we'll, I get ahead of myself. So let me, Nehemiah prays. And we have this prayer recorded for us. So we're, I'm going to read the whole thing right now. It's verses 5 through 11 in Nehemiah. You don't have to look at me. Look down. Um, and uh, I'm going to read the whole prayer. Okay? And, and there's some things in, in this prayer that, that we're going to point out. But, but Nehemiah, he, he, he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays because, because Jerusalem is, is, the, is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. So he prays and it says, and I said, 
I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah heard of the bad conditions in Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. He mourned, he wept, he fasted, he prayed. I know, I've said that before. You've heard it, right? I've said, how many times have I already said it and we're only just getting started, right? It's that important. So let's see what we can see in this prayer. First of all, he recognizes who God is, right? Right at the beginning, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. I don't want you to miss that part. Those who love you and observe your commandments. God has made some promises, and, and Nehemiah talks about that there. There's the promise and the curse, right? If you, if you follow me, I will. If you don't follow me, I will. Those are, those are some promises. And so Nehemiah recognizes that, and he says, great and awesome God. If you've said you'll do something, you'll do it. Do you believe that? And the second thing I see is he confesses his sins. Do you realize that Nehemiah was a pretty honorable and upright guy? You know how I know that? Because he attained a pretty prominent position with the king. And that, the position that he had, I'll tell you a little bit more about it later, but you only get that if you can be trustworthy. Right? So, so Nehemiah, he's a man of prayer. We see this. He, he's a man that is, is surrendered to God. We see this. He's a man that is, is trustworthy and honorable among the, the non-Jewish people. We see this. But he says, forgive me of my sins. He confesses his sins. I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted corruptly. And, and, and he, he lists some of the things that they've done. When we look at the problems of the world, I tend to believe that you, that we, blame the world. Right? We see all the wrong that's out there and we say, oh, that world, they are the problem. But you know who is to blame for the ungodly state of the world? We are. Society out there is crumbling, but it's our fault in here. Why would I say that? For two reasons. One, because it's true. 
And two, because even if it weren't true, the only way we can fix it is to take responsibility. Because if we blame them, then it's not our responsibility to fix it. Right? If we say that the world is the problem, then we can just stand back and be a holier than thou, and we, well, at least we're not them. And we can, we can, be, we can just think of ourselves more righteous. But if we take responsibility for it, then we've got to take action. Then we've got to fix it. We can act. Nehemiah wasn't in Jerusalem, but he recognized that he was part of the problem. He talks about the promises that God made and the consequences of not following him. He says that if we don't follow your commandments, you will scatter us to the farthest parts of the earth. Well, guess what? Nehemiah had been scattered to the farthest parts of the earth, which means he was part of the problem. Third, he admits that the fix comes from God when we are surrendered to him. He says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We, we all want, we want God to fix it, but we don't actually want to take responsibility or take action. He says, your, desire, your servants desire to fear your name. We want Jerusalem to be restored. We want to gain back proper worship in the temple. We want God to hear our prayer and grant us mercy. So, so Nehemiah is recognizing the power of God. He's recognizing the sin of man, including himself, and he's looking to God to fix it. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute here with me, guys. If, if we don't take responsibility, we can just say it's, you know, it's their fault. You pick the example and just say it's their fault. They lived. They chose that lifestyle. They chose to do those things. It's their fault. They've got to fix it. Just imagine for a moment that Jesus did that to you. Right? Because imagine if God the Father and God the Son are standing in heaven and they're looking down and they say, hey, look at Pat. His life's a mess. And Jesus says, yeah, but he did all of that on his own. Like he's the one that made those stupid choices. So should we do something about it? God the Father says. Jesus, no, I don't think so. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. Just so you know, that didn't happen, that conversation, right? <laughs> no, instead, Jesus came to earth to bear the consequences of our sin. He took responsibility for my sin, for your sin, so that you could be restored. Just imagine if Jesus said, it's not my problem. Where would we be? We would be in the pits of despair. We would be eternally separated from God. But I feel sometimes we as the church think that way. We, we, we recognize Jesus saved me from my sins. Oh, oh, but, but those sinners over there, they're not worthy of our help. I'm not going to get my hands dirty fixing their problems. They did it to themselves. 
Nehemiah easily could have done that. Just said, you know what? It was, I wasn't in Jerusalem when it, when it was torn down and, and broken up. It's not my problem. But he admits that God is a mighty God, that the people had sinned, and that God can fix that if we would surrender to him. So you guys, you're responsible for your sin. But God has provided a way through Jesus Christ. If you surrender to him, if you give your life, your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ, God has provided the solution to your problems through Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name. So Nehemiah hasn't even done anything yet, right? He's just seeking God. There's this, there's this desire, there's this burning uh, I don't even know what you would call it, but just this irritation with the situation inside of him and he's taking it seriously and he prays. What's, what's burning inside of you? What situation out there is, is burning inside of you? Whenever you hear about it, you always get a little bit like, oh, if only something could be fixed. You know, maybe it's poverty, whether it's locally or globally. Maybe it has to do with, with, uh, with babies or families or, you know, um, maybe it has to do with, with, I don't even know what it happens to be. But every time you hear it, you hear a situation and you just think, if only something could be done. That's a good start. Don't silence that voice. Pray. And mourn and weep and fast. Bring it to God. See where that takes you. In the last line in, in chapter one, it says, For I was the king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah throws out there at this point what his responsibility was. So, real quick, what, what is a cupbearer? Um, so he's He's, he's, and I said this, he was not a religious leader. He was the cupbearer to a pagan king. That means he was the head of food and drink security. Okay? He would inspect the food. Uh, he would inspect the wine to make sure that, that um, it hadn't been poisoned. Do you know how he would inspect it? He'd taste it. Right? If he dies, it was poisoned. Right? That's, that's the job that I want to attain to. That's. But, but so that position, he needs to be trustworthy. He has, has risen through the ranks, if you will, to a position um, uh, to be trusted by the king. The king has to trust the guy that's coming in with his food and with his drink to make sure that he is safe. And again, remember, his... his Religion was different than that of the king. And so that can, can sometimes be problematic in its own right. But this brings me back momentarily to the beginning when I said that Nehemiah was not extraordinary but extraordinary. His extraordinary talent really was his integ- integrity. Not even his faithfulness to the king but his faithfulness to God. That's something we could all have. Maybe you have it. Maybe you don't. 
But Nehemiah took his position seriously. And something tells me, even before he was cupbearer to the king, he took that position very seriously. Whatever he did, he did it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. That's a New Testament uh, quote from Colossians. Uh, in First Corinthians, it says, uh, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? So whatever you're doing, do it honorably toward God. Not toward men. I mean, obviously, if you're doing it towards God, it will be honorable towards men. Right? But, but whatever your position is, whatever your state in life is, if you're a boss or an employee, do it heartily as to the Lord and not towards men. If you're a, a husband or a wife, if you're a father or a mother, if you're a grandparent, if you're a grandchild, do it heartily as to the Lord and, and not towards men. If you're a neighbor, if you're a coworker, whatever it is, right? And that's what made Nehemiah extraordinary because he was ordinary, but just a little bit extra. Because he was, he was doing it as to the Lord, not towards men. As he faithfully served the king, he was actually faithfully serving his king. It's ordinary to obey your boss. It's extraordinary to do it as to the Lord. Right? That means not grumbling. It's not, oh, I'll do it because you said so, but I don't want to. Right? It's, it's doing it in a way that's pleasing not just to your boss, but to the Lord. Do you, do you take your position seriously? Do you take your position in the kingdom of God seriously? Ephesians 4.16 says, For whom the whole body joined and knit together by, every joint, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You know what that means? That means you are not just a Christian by yourself. You are a Christian as a part of the body of Christ where we are knit together and there is growth in the body because every part is doing its share and it's edifying itself in love. So every part doing its share. I love the example of the body because there's a lot of parts of the body that do things on a daily basis that we don't give any credit to. Some things, we don't even know if it does anything. But it's in there doing something. Right? There's, there's parts of your body that you don't know exist. But if they stopped functioning, you would die. And yet we think, well, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not the pastor. I'm not an elder. So who am I? You may just happen to be the part of the body that nobody knows about, but without your faithfulness to God, things would go downhill fast. Do you take your position seriously? Do you know what your position is? How you serve the kingdom of God, how you serve the body of Christ. Do you have a purpose in, in each of those categories that I talked about? You know, um, uh, parent or spouse or, or employee or boss or neighbor, or all of those different categories. Do you, do you think about that? How do you 
act in that category. If you were, if you were born, raise your hand. <laughs> All right, this is just to make sure nobody falls asleep. Right? So that means we all have parents. So that means you were a child. Maybe you still are. Maybe you still act like one. What is your role as a child to your parents? If you're a child in the home or even if you're an older child and your parents are old, what is your role? And do you live that role out on purpose? What is your role in your workplace? If you're retired, what is your role in your community? Uh, and and do, you, do you think about that? See, I'm a dad. I have a role. Most of the time, it's just to get out of the way. <laughs> but I have a role to play, right? And I have to know what, what my role is to be able to effectively train up my children in the way that they should go so when they're old, they will not depart from it. And so, so my wife and I talk a lot about what our role is as parents. How are we, we raising up our children? Do you think about what your what your role is, are, are, you, are you taking it one day at a time? Are you flying by the seat of your pants? Are you just making it up as you go along? Let's see what Nehemiah does. Quick recap, Nehemiah has been trusted with the life of the king by protect, protecting his drink cup. He's heard about his home country. That's disturbed him, and he prays. So now we're in chapter 2. It came to pass in the month of uh, Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, well, let me stop, the month of Nisan, or Nisan. When did, when did, when did he hear about Jerusalem? It said in, in chapter 1, in the month of Chislev. So this is great. This is great information, guys. Don't miss this. They're giving us a timeline. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year of, king, in king, of the king, right, King Artaxerxes, and then in the month of, of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So we know the timeline. Except we don't know what Chislev and Nisan mean. So we don't. So let me tell you. Uh, Nisan was the first month of the Jewish calendar in spring. It's around March or April. Okay? And then Chislev was the ninth month. Um, like around November or December. So it started in Chislev. He heard about it in Chislev in, say, November. And then we move us up to chapter 2. We're in Nisan, which is March or April. So we have about a three to four month time frame here. So, so we know now that from when Nehemiah first heard about it, to now, whatever's about to happen in chapter two, I won't spoil it yet, it's been three to four months. We don't know what happened in those three months, but I'm going to tell you what happened in those three months. Because even though our text doesn't tell us, it makes it pretty clear what happened during those three months. So it says, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine, gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? See, now we have a problem. Nehemiah looks sad in the presence of the king when there's wine in front of the king, which means maybe... Just maybe 
Nehemiah is about to betray the king. Nehemiah knows something. And he's sad because he knows the king's going to die. That's not true. But this is, this is why Nehemiah is dreadfully afraid because the king sees Nehemiah and says, he does not look happy. Something bad is happening inside of Nehemiah. Is Nehemiah a traitor? Has Nehemiah just sold me out to the enemy? Is my wine poisoned? And the king says, Nehemiah, tell me about it. And Nehemiah is dreadfully afraid because this can go south very quickly. If you were about to betray the king, you'd probably look a little different than you normally do. Remember back to when you were a kid and you were playing ball in the house when you were told you weren't supposed to play ball in the house and the ball hit the lamp and the lamp fell down and broke and you cleaned it all up real good and then your mom came home and she said, how are things? And you're like, fine. What'd you do today? Nothing. Then what's wrong? Because you're acting weird. Right? They knew, your mom knew immediately. Moms have that superpower, right? Dads, it takes us a while. We'll catch on. Usually, it was our fault that we were playing ball in the house and the lamp broke. That's why we have kids. We can blame them. I'm kidding. Um, but so, so the, the king knew something was, something was wrong. And this could be bad. And so he asked Nehemiah. He says, Nehemiah, what's, what's going on? See, Nehemiah wasn't about to betray the king, but the king doesn't know that. But the king might get nervous and he might dispose of his cupbearer if something bad were about to happen to him. So he says, what's going on? And, and Nehemiah is honest with him. And he tells him about his home country and how that makes him sad. And the king responds, what do you request? What do you want me to do about it? What injustice in this world bothers you? Where do you see a problem that you wish something could be done about? This is the beginning of your process. Don't miss it. Many people knew about the condition of the walls in Jerusalem, but who did something about it? Many people knew that Israel had sinned against the commands of their God, but who was taking it personally? Who was taking it seriously? Nehemiah. We know when he first heard about it, he mourned and he wept and he fasted, and he prayed. Now it's three to four months later, and he's still sad about it. And the king said, what do you want? Then the king said to me in verse four, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He prayed. Right there. What does that prayer look like? We have recorded here the prayer that Nehemiah made three months ago when he first heard about it. But if you're standing in front of the king and queen and probably others, and the king says, what's going on? Why are you sad? And you tell him, and then he says, what do you want me to do about it? What's the prayer look like there? Hold on just a second, king. I got to go home in my prayer closet. I'll be back in a couple hours because I need to pray. No, this is the prayer, right? Okay, God, now's the time. Please don't let him kill me. Help him give me what I want. Amen. Right? 
That's not word for word. But it was, like, it was that quick or quicker, right? He didn't have time to, to go into this long, flowy prayer, and he didn't have time to talk about how awesome God is and how sinful Israel is and how, nope, now is the time. You know, it reminds me of a story. Jesus was up on the mountain, and his disciples were trying to heal somebody. And they were trying to cast out some demons, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he's like, what's going on? And they said, and they said we, you know, we were, our, your disciples were trying to cast out this demon, but they couldn't. And he's like, demon be gone. And, and then he said, they're like, how did you do that? And he said, this, kind, this, this type of situation only works with prayer and fasting. So does that mean that what Jesus said there was, I prayed and fasted right then? Oh, a demon needs to come out. I need to fast. No more eating. Not going to eat. Okay, demon's gone. He fasted for three seconds at work. No, what he's saying is, I've been preparing my whole life for this moment. Nehemiah's prayer right here was not this long, ornate prayer. He had been preparing for three months for this moment. And that prayer is just, all right, God, it's time. Let's do this. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you, re will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Here's the part of the story that you miss if you aren't paying attention. Nehemiah had a plan. The king said, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to send me back to Jerusalem to fix the situation. And he's like, well, how long is it going to take? And tell me some details. And he said, okay. And I can just imagine like he pulls out like this map. Okay, here's what we're going to do. He had the plan all set. He said, well, it's going to take this amount of time. I'm going to want to go. I'm going to need you to write some letters that gives me free passageway from here to there because I'm going to be moving some, through some territory and people are going to push back a little bit. So I want some letters from the king that says that I can go from here to there. Also, you know Asaph, the guy that cuts down the trees and makes the timber? I'm going to need you to write him a letter and tell him to give me all the supplies that I need. Also, can, do you hear this, guys? He wasn't shooting from the hip. He had a plan. The king said, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And it was go time. He was ready. Nehemiah knew exactly what he needed to do. He wasn't making it up as he went along. Nehemiah had a desire for Jerusalem to be rebuilt from the moment he heard the news about its condition. He mourned and he wept and he fasted and prayed for, four, for three to four months. He sought the face of God and this is the part that they don't tell you, but they tell you, he developed a plan. Right? We think of waiting on the Lord as if God wants me to do something, he'll make it happen. Well, that's true. But also if he wants you to do something, 
he'll start with this burning desire in your heart and in your soul. And then he'll wait for you to do something. Do you know when they, when they crossed the water, the first person had to get their foot wet, right? He said that, like, they took the, when the first step goes into the water, the water's parted. They had to like, and, and maybe he, his foot didn't get wet. Maybe he just like, right when it, it's, it's gone. But they, they had to, G, Peter had to step out of the boat. Right? You can't walk on water if you're still in the boat. He developed a plan. He took responsibility for the sins of the people, for the destruction of the city. He did nothing for three months, except he did everything. He sought God. He developed a plan. He waited. If God shows me what to do, I'll do something. The problem with this is that we don't know what we're looking for. The number of of people that share their faith on a, a daily, a weekly, a monthly basis is pretty low. And I believe the reason is because we think if God wants me to say something to somebody, I'll say it. But we're not praying in the morning, God, bring somebody into my life that I can affect, that I can speak the truth into. We're not looking for the opportunity. We're not praying for the opportunity. We're not praying for a plan. Nehemiah waited on the Lord for the perfect opportunity to explain to the king what was happening in his head. He didn't wait for God to develop the plan for him. He developed a plan with God and waited for the opportunity to present the plan to the king. See, the waiting is for the right opportunity. Right? You, you, you don't want to force the opportunity, but you want to be ready when the opportunity comes. Let me tell you a little bit about my family. I normally, our, my family comes to the 11 o'clock service, so you, I'm new to you guys, right? Like, who is this joker? <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my family. A couple of my kids are sitting in the back, um, but I'm married to a beautiful wife, and right from the beginning, we knew we wanted to have a big family. Almost immediately after getting married, we were pregnant for our first boy, Liam. It means defender or protector. As the oldest child, he's going to be a defender of the faith, but also a protector of his siblings. That one's still coming. (laughs) Then 19 months later, Natalie. Natalie means birth of a savior, right? She was born December 28th. Close enough. Then 14 months later, Rebecca means captivated. After Rebecca, the doctor said, it will not be safe for you to have more children. It would not be safe for the mother. It would not be safe for the, uh, the unborn, the preborn child. I do not recommend that you have any more children. But we wanted more children. And nothing happened. We couldn't get pregnant. We weren't having kids. We wanted a big family. You know what we did? We prayed for a child. But no child. We wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. My wife, more than I, asked God to take the desire away from her. She said, if you're not going to give me a kid, give, take away the desire for a child. And he wouldn't. So we said, well, if we can't have a kid and we want more kids, what are we going to do? Steal one. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Kind of. We looked into private adoption. That is a lot more expensive than stealing one. (laughs) 
we, so we chose an agency, we put in a down payment, uh, you know, we, we, we had a whole support system behind us, uh, but then that door closed. That's a, another story for another time, but that avenue was not going to work to get another child. So what did we do? We gave up, right? That's what you did. No. We prayed and we mourned and we fasted and we wept and we said, God, if you want us to have another child, what are we going to do? So we, 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 we then moved towards foster care, which we didn't want. We don't like the state in our business. But so we said, okay, we're going to go towards foster care. And we, we got approved through the system, but we only wanted a baby and we only wanted an adoptable baby. We didn't want to, our situation, we didn't want foster just to foster. We were looking to add to our family. But that situation doesn't happen very often. So we were approved, but, but we weren't getting a child. And then one Monday I was, I was working, I, I, was, I, I traveled around and I was driving in my car and my phone rang and it was my wife and, and she said, hey Pat, foster care just called and they said that they have a baby. Um, and uh, I said, well, what did you say? She said, I told them I wanted it. And she said, the lady asked if she wanted to talk, if she wa I wanted to talk to you first. She said, I said, yes, but we still want it. So she said, I said, okay, what do we got to do? She said, you got to drive four hours south tomorrow to pick them up. So, okay. Well, it just so happens, this was New York, and it was January, and it was a snowstorm. Um, but we weren't giving up on this thing, right? So, uh, so they said, he's six, he's four day, he was six days old when we picked him up. They said, it looks like it, there's no guarantees in the foster system that it's going to be adoptable, but this is a slam dunk. This is like 99% sure he's going to be yours. You can name him. So can you guys just imagine this? This is Monday morning, right? We had had friends over the, the, during the weekend, and we had just talked to them about whatever, and like maybe we should get a dog or something. I don't even remember exactly what it was. But then on Tuesday, we called them and said, we're having a baby tomorrow. And they're like, what? This doesn't even make sense. And so we're like, we got to name him. How do we name this kid? Well, you know what? Reuben means, behold, a son. And that's kind of what we felt. It was like, ta-da! And so we drove, we drove four hours away and we picked up our son. It took three hours to complete the, uh, three, it took three years to complete the adoption. Reuben is ours, no givebacks. We did it, right? We got the bigger family. But wait, there's more. And no, it's not a juicer. We were at a prayer service at our church and a guy that didn't really know our situation came up to my wife and he said, God's going to heal your womb. You're going to have more kids. Liz says she felt like Sarah because she laughed. 19 months after we got Reuben, we had Corbin, which means a gift to God. And just so you know, when we went, we went to the hospital, we went to like the, the high risk unit because of all of the, the problems that she had before and all of the things that the doctor said and they looked her over and they did all the tests and did all the stuff and then they took out the baby and they said, man, it looks good in there. You should keep having kids. So guess what? Uh, how many more months was it after that? 20 months later, we had Jude, which means praise the Lord. We didn't... God had put a desire in our hearts right from the beginning for a big family. And many well-intentioned people said, you know, you already have three kids. A lot of people can't have that many. It's better to have a healthy mom than no mom at all. 
You should be content with the kids that you have. And they were well-meaning people. And they were just trying to look out for us. And they didn't want us to be hurt. And they didn't want us to be sad. But the fact of the matter was, God put a desire in our hearts. And we sought that. And we waited patiently for him. Well, all of the other moms were having more kids. Liz was, was sitting there barren. But man, he came through. Why do I tell you this? Because we actively waited on God. We didn't sit back and wait for a baby to show up. We knew that God had given us a desire for children and we were going to fight for that reality. We prayed We wept, we mourned, we fasted, but we also planned because God had given us a desire and now we celebrate. See, that's an extraordinary story of God using ordinary people in an extra way. So he can get the glory because this is nothing, we get no glory in this. This is God. People, People say, oh, well, the reason that her womb was healed is because time. Nope. You mispronounced God. God healed her womb. You know what? If we would have kept having children, Reuben would never be in our home. And Reuben was supposed to be in our home. And so the only way for Reuben to be in our home is for us to stop having babies, have a desire to continue to have more babies, go through a private adoption agency and get diverted, we'll say, go through foster care, get a baby, And then God's like, okay, you did what I wanted. You got Reuben. Have some more babies. You know, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I've always heard that as as delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. But what it actually says is delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Right? Did you hear the difference? Me neither. For the longest time, I didn't hear it. But what I heard, what I always thought it was, if I have this want, God will give it to me. But actually, what it is, is God gives you the want. He gives you the desire. And then he gives you the desire, right? So God gave us a desire for children. And then he gave us children. He gave us the fruit of that desire. It's not just he gives you the, you want something? God will give it to you. You just rub the lamp three times and you get three wishes and God will give it to you. No, he actually will give you a burning passion for something. And then expect you to do something with it. This is Nehemiah. This is you and me. Something is stirring inside of you. First, you must surrender to God. Maybe what's stirring in you is your recognition for your need of God's help. What we talked about earlier, you recognize that you are far from God and you need help. And that's where Jesus came in. He said, though it's not my fault that Pat's a sinner, I will pay the price for his sin so he can have a restored relationship with the Father. Maybe that's where you are. He's taken responsibility for your sins if you'll surrender your life to him. I believe most of Christianity is waiting for God to show them what to do, but in reality, God is waiting for you to be ready. He's already begun speaking in your heart. Maybe you aren't listening. Maybe you're explaining it away. But there's already something that when you hear about it, you get a little passionate about. 
I want you to be somebody great for the kingdom of God. Not by being extraordinary, but by being extraordinary. What are you supposed to do? And, and listen, guys, this is, read Nehemiah. It's not all easy. This, it sounds good right now, right? Everything's great. Let me just read. I'm going to just close with the last portion of this part of chapter 2. Then I went to the governors in the region, verse 9, beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And then right here, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Here's the negative portion. There are people that are not happy that Nehemiah is pursuing this vision is pursuing this purpose. And as you read through Nehemiah, you're going to see his faithfulness to God, his faithfulness to the task, and and his battle with the enemy. There was enemies outside, there was enemies inside, like in Israel, and there was the enemy within, his own, am I doing what's right? Am I I supposed to be doing this? Like, this is such an amazing book about an ordinary guy who does extraordinary things. Every single one of us here has a burning inside of us. Don't put it out. Light it on fire. Seek God. And he will make it make sense. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray right now in this room that you would that there would just be an uneasiness deep within each and every one of us. Lord, that you would be stirring up inside of us that thing that matters most. Because my, my desire, my passion, the thing that gets me is not the same as what gets everybody here. But Lord, if each of us would seek your face, would surrender our lives to you, you could change the world. Use us, ordinary people, in an extraordinary way for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen. Amen.